If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John? For the last couple of weeks, we've just settled in on this passage, and this will be our third sermon from it. This is the longest prayer that we have in the Bible of Jesus. We see in this prayer that he took some time to pray for himself in the first five verses. Most specifically, he said in verse 1, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. And then we saw in verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his 11 remaining disciples. There were 12, but Judas has already left the other disciples. And there Jesus prays that God would keep them and that they would be one and that he would set them apart or sanctify them. And today we are going to look at the last section of this prayer where he's going to be praying for the ones that would come after these 11 disciples. Would you look with me? In chapter 17 of John, beginning in verse 20, and let's just dive right into this prayer where Jesus is praying to his Father. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as you've loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me, may be in them, and I in them. Father, what comforting words these are to see Jesus' prayer. He not only spent a little time praying for himself, not only for those 11 disciples, but he actually prays for us, those that would believe in the word that was preserved by these apostles. Now, as we look at this, may we be not only encouraged, but challenged to apply by the grace that you give. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Josephus, a Jewish historian, shares a story that may or may not be true, but it took place around the year 330 B.C., Alexander the Great was on his world conquest, and he was moving from Helen's spot to Egypt. 
And in between was the city of Jerusalem. And so there is Alexander the Great with all his throng of soldiers, and they are coming towards Jerusalem. And God's people there in Jerusalem are aware of it, and they're all wondering, what will we do? And it says, like, all eyes are on the high priest. It's his call. It's his decision. His name is Jadua. And Jadua quickly takes this problem to the Lord and begins to pray. Oh God, what would you have us to do as Alexander the Great is coming our way? And the idea pops in his mind that instead of boarding up the walls of the city and preparing for war, to do the opposite. To extend kindness and hospitality to Alexander the Great and all of his soldiers. So he tells the people of Jerusalem, let's clean up the city and let's make this as hospitable as we possibly can. Dress in white. He tells his colleagues, the other priests, wear your finest garments. And let's not wait within the walls of the city. Rather, let's actually go out and anticipate and greet Alexander the Great and all his soldiers. So the soldiers come in their horses, and they are greeted there by all these welcoming faces. Alexander the Great gets down from his horse and meets high priest Jadua. And he sees what he is wearing, this, this priestly garment, And he's immediately captured by the God whom he serves. And this was a very unusual instance, according to Josephus, but he actually worshipped the God of the Bible and offered a sacrifice there to God. And then the high priest, high priest Judea, asked for the scrolls to be brought. And they brought an Old Testament scroll that contained the prophet Daniel's writings, the same Daniel that we have in our Old Testament. And they unrolled it to the section, probably like chapter 7 or or chapter 8, that was a prophecy of, of this Greek army that would take power and rule the land. And the high priest showed Alexander the Great himself right there in the prophecy of Daniel. And Alexander was so taken back by the kindness, the hospitality, and seeing himself in Scripture that he not only did he not take over the city that day, he actually assigned soldiers to protect it, to preserve God's people and God's law. There was something about seeing himself in the scriptures. Loved ones today, you have an opportunity to see yourself in the scriptures. As we look here at this passage that we just read, it says in John 17, verse 20, this is the third part of his prayer. He says, I do not ask for these only. I'm not only asking for the 11 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. There is another group of people, as I'm praying to you, Father, that I'm praying for right now. There is a group of people 
that will come to be followers of mine through the word of the disciples. Now that could have been the spoken word of the disciples that lived during the same time as the disciples did, but it also could be the written word that was preserved by the Spirit of God, recorded by John, by Peter, or by Matthew. So I want to take some time to pray for them as well. It says in verse 21, that they may all be one. That word all there is not only speaking of Christians that would come to faith in Christ during the first century, but the word all extends even into our day. I don't think it's much of a stretch of an imagination, loved ones, for us to think that when Jesus was praying in John 17, that he had you in mind, that he had our local church in mind, that he had other gospel-preaching churches in Green Bay and Brown County and literally around the world in mind. So what does he pray? There are two different things that we see Jesus praying for those that would become believers after the disciples. So let's just take our time this morning and look at what he prays for. The first thing we see is that Jesus, if you have an outline there on the table, you can follow along. The first thing we see here is that Jesus prays that we will be one. You see it in verse 21. You see it in verse 22. You see it in verse 23 where where Jesus is asking the same thing three separate times. Look what it says in verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, the Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23. And I in them, and you in me, and they may become perfectly one. Now, if Jesus prayed for something once, that's significant enough. But we see him praying for the same thing in three consecutive verses. And if you go back to last week's message on John 17, verse 11, he prays for the 11 disciples to be one. Something that is absolutely essential to the heart of Jesus is that we would be one. One Bible teacher, D.A. Carson, said this, Unity is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, but by coming to adherence to the apostolic gospel. Now, that's a lot of words there. But what does he mean by that? He is saying that unity or oneness is not something that we can muster up by saying, what do you agree on and what you don't you agree on? And let's come to a, a small little list and say we're in agreement. But listen, unity is really experienced when all of us realize that we are sinners. Drowning in a sea of despair. Thousands of miles from shore and unable to, to rescue ourselves. And 
Jesus comes and gives us his life on our behalf that we would not die but experience life. Then all of us have that shared experience of being rescued. So unity is not something that we achieve by ourselves, but as Paul would write in Ephesians 4 verse 3, we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit and in the bond of peace. So how are we to be one? So let's just take most of our time this morning and let's just zero in on this concept of what it means to be an answer to Jesus' prayer to be one. The first way I think that we are going to be one is in relationships. When you look at Jesus' example, there in verse 21, 22, and 23, as he speaks of being one, he ties it to his relationship with the Father. You see, the Father and the Son are different people with different roles, and yet they enjoy a oneness in their relationship. And he is saying, it's like that. To use another metaphor that we see in this passage of Scripture, known as the Upper Room Discourse from John 13 to John 17, we remember in John 15, where Jesus said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. So he provides a picture of what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus. To use more of a Wisconsin metaphor, instead of a vine, we might use a a tree trunk, where there are branches. And we are encouraged to abide, to remain, to stay connected to Christ. And it's there we do that through His Word, by obeying His Word, and the sap is the Spirit of God flowing into our lives. And as we are doing that, loved ones, we see that we're not the only branches. There are other people that are abiding as well. And we are to encourage Others to abide in Jesus. Branches are close to one another. We are all to remain in Jesus and we need one another. Let me tell you something I know about sin. Is that sin will separate and sin will try to put us into hiding. And so here's what can happen. And my guess is there's multiple people in the room here this morning that might say something like this. If the people in this room have known what I've done this week, if they have known what my eyes have seen, what my ears have intentionally listened to, the words that have come out of my mouth and the decisions that I have made, there would not be a person that would want to be within a hundred feet of me. This is what sin does. But what relationships do is we can realize that all of us have sinned. And what relationships can do is when we are in these intentional relationships of abiding in Christ, we can realize that we're not alone in this. Many of us have blown it this week, but by the grace of God, we can have forgiveness of sins. We can be forgiven. We can receive the same grace that saved us. Now is the grace that enables us to obey and to pick up and move on where we left off. This is one of the reasons 
that in recent years we've really emphasized small groups or, or life groups. Because if we want to be one, well, then we need to know one another. I was talking with, a, well, honestly, I was talking to my sister and her fiancé this week. Um, and uh, they're, they're in another state, and they were uh, starting to attend this church. And I think they're kind of new to just church attendance stuff. And I said, you know, there's this great word called commitment. <laughs> and it's kind of a curse word in our generation But you know what you really need to do is you not only need to attend on Sunday morning, but you need to get involved in one of those small groups that they're talking to you about. And not only that, but you really need to get involved into a ministry. Because that church is not going to become your church until you get to know the people in that family. And do you know what damages oneness? It's unforgiveness. It is inevitable that we are going to hurt one another, whether intentionally or unintentionally. But when we hold on to that hurt, not only do you disrupt your oneness, but the whole church's oneness. And you you limit your own effective ministry as well. So the first thing we see here under the area of oneness as we do that through relationship. But let me give you another one, and that is beliefs. We are to be one not only in our relationships, but also in what we believe. I think I included this in in your outline, Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. It says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, in all. Yes, we want to be one in our relationships, but not at the expense of truth. And so there's a bare minimum of things that we have to believe in. That's the difference between heaven and hell. And we see them there in Ephesians 4. That there is one true church. You know, we'll have a, a congregational form of government here where we'll have business meetings where people can vote on this or that. But one thing that is not up for a church vote is what is truth. And where is the source of truth? It is the written word of God. So there's one spirit of God, one hope. We realize the only hope for us is that there is one that would rescue us from our sins. There is one Lord, and at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. There is one faith, one true teaching, that the word is inspired, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that Jesus is God, that we are saved by grace through faith, that Jesus will physically return. There's one baptism, and there is one God and Father of all. Pluralism that saturates our culture and the Bible are not compatible at all. Now, in order to be one, there are essential doctrines that we have to have agreement on. But not all. Not all doctrines are essential. 
I heard of a man that was on a bridge and he was about ready to jump. And the guy went up to him and says, don't do it. He said, well, nobody loves me. So I said, well, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, are you Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. Now, what franchise? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Now, are, are you Northern Baptist or are you Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist of the conservative or Northern Baptist of the liberal? He said, Northern conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Now, Northern conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region? Or Northern Conservative Baptist, Eastern Region? He said, well, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lake Region of 1879? Or Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region of the Council of 1912? He said, well, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lake Region of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him off the bridge. We have to know what doctrines are worth pushing people off the bridge on, right? So let me just give you a few quick ones. Music. Have you figured and have you learned that some churches do music differently than we do? When we were in Africa just a few weeks ago, they just took an old water jug and missionary Moses just started playing that. And that was our instrument for for our worship service. So there's different styles. How about baptism? We believe that one is saved from their sins by the grace of God, and then they get baptized after that through immersion, and we even like having a baptistry in our church. But there are some other people, like Presbyterians, that preach the same gospel that we do, and they actually baptize babies in a way that would say we are dedicating this baby to the Lord. Now, I don't see that at all in Scripture, but it isn't anything that we're going to take fellowship over. And then there's things like, what do you do about men and women? We are what is called complementarianism, where that men and women are equal in value but possess masculine and feminine qualities to complement and actually complete one another. Men and women are given different roles in the home and church, and the two genders are a part of God's ordained plan. But then there are others that adhere to something called egalitarianism, where there are no gender distinctions, and men and women's roles in the home and at church, are interchangeable. And yet they preach the gospel. So what the world is looking to see, what do we do on these second and third tier things that are not essential? How do we love one another? It's okay for us to open up the Bible and provide a, an argument. This is the position I have and why. But if they disagree, then we still have to love them over these non-essential areas. 
A German theologian said this, and I'm sure you've heard it. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. So we, we want to be one in our relationships. We want to be one in what we believe. But we also want to be one in our mission. There's another verse there in Philippians 2, 2 that you see in your handout. Paul, writing to the church of Philippi, said, Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. At the close of our service, and at the close of our meal today, there's going to be an appeal. Do you all stick around and help take these round tables up and, and put them away? And it is fascinating Because in a matter of minutes, this room will be cleared out and the chairs will be off to the side and the work will be over. But if you had one person to do that, it would take all day long. That's the power of a mission. When people understand there's something going on here that is greater than ourselves. When you look at this prayer in John 17... In verse 20 and 21, you have Jesus displaying an amazing amount of confidence that this message that he has left with 11 disciples will be faithfully and accurately passed down from generation to generation because he's leaving. There is a mission. We call it the Great Commission of taking this message that you can be rescued from your sins and being discipled in that. And that mission now rests on our shoulders. So there's a place for us to know that this is ours, and we can experience oneness in this. In the last month or so, I've been working on trying to illustrate how we do things here at Highland Crest. I presented it to our deacons, presented it at a business meeting, and and now maybe I'll just roll it out to you here. On the back of your bulletin, there's a little diagram of a picture is worth a thousand words, and, and this is kind of how we're doing things here at Highland Crest. We exist to know Jesus, to make Jesus known. There are four pillars that undergird what we do on the very bottom. We want to be biblically saturated, that is that everything in the word, everything in our church goes back to the scriptures. We want to have humility, not only when we became a Christian, but have ongoing repentance in our life. We want to have meaningful relationships. We want to have a gospel witness, not only locally, but globally. So how are we doing this? And this is just more of a reflection. I'm thinking of how we have been doing this for the last couple of years. Well, the first thing we do is we pray. Certainly, you can have a club where you can have people come and sing some songs and provide some classes, but that's not the church. We are asking for God to work miracles around us. And so we begin with prayer. You'll see it off to the left. Paul told uh, Timothy, first of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. So we want to begin everything here at our church with prayer. And if, loved ones, if you are not on our email prayer chain, then I would urge you to do that. 
Because on a regular basis, opportunities come for you to, to join the church family in praying. But we not only pray for one another, we pray for additional workers. In Matthew 9, 37 and 38, Jesus said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We are told to pray that additional workers will come. I'll just confide in you that I pray. I pray for 250 to fill our auditorium. And when that happens, I pray for 300 to come. And it isn't to build a Highland Crest name, but to build the mission of being able to take the good news that we've been given and to share it with others. And so that when God answers that prayer, and some of you realize this morning that you are an answer to prayer because it's your first Sunday with us, we've been praying for you that you would come. Then if the Lord would lead them, you and others to come back, the next step there is hospitality. We want to call people to a relationship to us. This is that part of that oneness. So we try to have people over in our home. And if you get invited, don't expect a very fancy meal because the emphasis is not on the food. The emphasis is on you. And the emphasis on hearing where you're at with the Lord. We want to hear your story. Are you still in the process of learning about Jesus? Or have you been born again? Have you trusted Christ? Sometimes people come to our home and they don't come back to church. I don't know what happened, but that does happen sometimes, as friendly as we try to be. But if that gives way to the next part, which could be we want to encourage you to get into a group of people, like a small group that meets in someone's homes or a Wednesday night, so you can build these relationships of oneness. You see a membership class. Well, we don't have that membership class that runs ongoing throughout the year, but when we do, perhaps the Lord would ask you to consider what it looks like to be a member of our church. And then there's these rhythms that are taking place in our church, like the worship service, our Bible studies that meet at 9 o'clock, our Wednesday nights, our mission trips, our retreats and serving. Those go on and on throughout the week or throughout the year. And then the Lord may lead some to say, I really want to be developed and more strategically discipled. And level one of our leadership pipeline would be understanding the basics of the faith, like what Ron Slippy is doing right now in teaching new believers, teaching the basics, having an overview of the book of Romans. Level two would be having a strategy to fight your own sin in your life. And level three would be to develop leaders, uh, to lead within the church like elders. And then this would lead to multiplying. A healthy church is one that's going to see other churches planted. We're trying to do that with the Lord's help in Senegal, Africa. We don't know how the Lord might lead in another place. But here's the point. God is leading us towards a mission. And every church is probably going to do it a little bit different. This is not written in stone, but it seems to be where we are at right now. I'm reminded of a of a historical event that took place in the early 1940s. As, as Hitler was sweeping across Europe, he was chasing the Allied soldiers and the Britain soldiers to a, a port named Dunkirk there in France. 
And there were hundreds of thousands of soldiers that were kind of trapped there. And the royal army only had space for about 13,000 soldiers, but they had well over 300,000 soldiers that needed to get off the port and escape the approaching Russian, rather German soldiers. And something amazing took place. That there were common, ordinary people that said our military needs boats. Well, they can use my boat. And so there were fishermen. There were tugboats. There was a ferry that would transport people from one shore to the next. Everyone that had a boat said, we'll go out and we'll rescue the soldiers from death. It's been called one of the greatest naval feats of all time. Well over 330,000 soldiers were saved. You know, loved ones, that's kind of a picture of what the local church is to be like. Ordinary people like you and me that are on mission. That anyone that would want to hear the good news, to be able to share the good news, to be saved from death, to be able to experience the life that God intends for them. So here's this oneness. It's not only in relationship, it's not only in beliefs, it's in mission, and then finally, it's in sacrifice. When we look at this passage, we see Jesus speaking about glory. It says in verse 22, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. When we look at the Gospel of John, often Jesus used the word glory to be referring to going to the cross. Today on Super Bowl Sunday, there will be a team that will be pursuing glory of lifting up this Lombardi trophy. There will be men with tears coming down their cheeks because finally they've been glorified in doing it. Recently, there was this Grammy Awards ceremony where they were the, the recipients were glorified, right? But the glory that we see here in experiencing oneness is through the cross. Now, we might be not be called to take on the physical cross, but we are called to sacrifice. We are called to give up our time, our conveniences, that we might serve one another. Today, we are driven by such a consumer mindset. But what we are called to do is experience oneness by sacrifice. So what is the result of this oneness? Look at what it says there in verse 23, the last part. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The result of us displaying oneness is that the world will know that Jesus was sent by God. As much time as I might put into preparing a sermon to preach before you. That is not the deciding factor of what the world is going to see as proof that Jesus was sent by the Father. As much time and effort as we might put into trying to have a slick program within the church, 
that will have no bearing on what the world thinks of Jesus being sent by God. As much training as an instrumentalist will have, as much talent as a singing team might have, that too will have no bearing on what the world says about Jesus being sent by God. But you know what, Will? It's ordinary people like you and I that love one another. And the world takes notice and says, you know, there's something different about those people. On American currency, there is this Latin phrase that says, e pluribus unum. And that means, out of many, one. And loved ones, how well are we doing as a nation with that concept right now? Could we say it out of many? We are one. Do you see the church? We have an amazing opportunity. You know, there is no recorded portrait of Jesus. There is not one that's been passed down all these thousands of years. I take that back. We are to be the portrait of Jesus. People of our world are to look at the way we love one another, not only at Highland Crest, but other gospel-preaching churches and say, man, maybe there's something to this Jesus. He was sent from God. He does have something to say about my life. Well, there's two different things that Jesus prays for. We just finished half of our sermon, okay? I'm only kidding. Here's the second thing, and we won't spend a lot of time on it. Jesus prayed that we would be with him for eternity. Look at what it says there in verse 25. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you have people in your life that when you have a a problem, you go to because it seems like God really answers their prayers more than yours? And so you're like, they're they're right there to text, they're right there to call, because if anyone's going to pray for me, I want that person to pray for me. Within our family, our, our 11-year-old Moses is like that. It seems like, like the Lord just consistently answers his prayer uh, in an unusual way. I can think of one time I was overhearing our boys. One of them had misplaced something, and they were looking for it. And one of them said, hey, did you pray about it? And, yeah. What did you have Moses pray about it? <laughs> Moses, hey, can you pray for this? Well, if there is anyone that you want to be praying for you, it's Jesus. Because the Father always answers his prayers. And so what we see here is that Jesus prays for those who have been rescued from the sea of sin. I'd take you right back to what it says there in chapter 17, verse 20. 
It says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Those who have realized that you lack the capability of rescuing yourself from sin and that the only way that you can be saved is by God intervening on your behalf by sending Christ to die for you and to be raised from life. Well, there is this wonderful prayer that Jesus has for you that you would be with him for eternity. So who is it that's going to heaven with Jesus? Those who are profoundly moral and religious? Those who have a good heart and have positive intentions? No. It's only those who realize they're drowning in sin. And they are desperate to be saved from that. Jesus will come to you and rescue you. He died and was raised to life. Have you trusted Christ? Do you know this Father? Here's a wonderful thing we're reminded of today. That when we know the Father, we also get the family. And let us celebrate that today too. So here's the prayer. Here's the prayer. That we would be one. Not only that, that we would spend an eternity with Jesus. What about you? Can we just say, let's be an answer to that prayer. If you've never trusted Christ today, what does that mean? It means to believe that you're a sinner. It means to believe that God loved you so much he sent Jesus to die for you. To place all of your trust in this truth. To confess your sins. To be, what the Bible says, saved. To be born again. Would you do that? As the music team comes, let's just have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this intimate prayer between a son and his father. And what we see here is this theme that echoes throughout. It really matters to Jesus how we treat one another, how we talk with one another, how much of a priority we make towards one another. And oh, Lord, May that not just roll off our backs. But among all the other things that we've got going on in our life, may we love the church as much as Jesus loved the church. May we prioritize the family, whether this family or another family that God may be calling us to to serve at from another place. It's, it's your idea. It's your family. I pray today for those that have never entered into that family. They've never truly been saved from their sins. If that's you, friend, I'd urge you right now just to to say, "I, I need you, Jesus. I'm in sin. Forgive me. I trust that Jesus saved me. He died for me on the cross. I put all my hope in him. Help me to live for you all of my days. In Jesus' name, amen.